This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. Hello, hopefully you're not sick of hearing just me yet, because I have one more case for you. While Miss Mayday flies around the world, I am going to talk to you about some fly paper. You may have wanted to be a fly on the wall, just realize you can also be a fly on the paper. So go ahead and get comfortable. This is a little bit longer than my previous anthologies, because I was able to actually find a lot of articles for my research. Just so you know, there were two kinds of flypaper in the Victorian era, the sticky kind that would trap the fly by having its feet stuck to, like, glue. And there was another type. It was called a paper type that you would dampen in saucer full of water, and that would cause the poison to come out of this paper, which was arsenic. And the water then would be an arsenic water that the flies would drink, and that would poison them and kill them. There also was a sugar additive to this paper, and that was used to attract the flies. Now, to prevent humans from accidentally drinking this arsenic water, they added a bitter agent called quassia, which is, it caused it to also have a brown coloring. And quassia is a plant, and the bark of this plant is bitter. And the bark is what is used, and the bark actually has medicinal qualities as well. It can be used to treat anorexia, indigestion, constipation, and fever, and it's also a known dewormer. So now with this type of flypaper that you soak, the majority of the arsenic on that paper would become soluble in water within a few hours, and you wind up having a tea-colored solution. Typically, you could extract 150 to 400 milligrams of arsenic salts into this water. It's pretty potent. We're going to go ahead and start this story a little bit more different than most. So it starts with an investigation by Earl Dooley, who was a chemist in Idaho. He started his own investigation into a mystery of his relatives Robert and Ed Dooley's deaths. He suspected it might have had something to do with Robert's new wife. Now, why did he think this? His wife was Lida. And she married Robert Dooley on March 17, 1912. The couple had a daughter together in 1914, and they were living in Twin Falls, Idaho, along with Robert's brother, Ed. Now, their daughter was named Lorraine, and Lorraine wound up dying in 1915, and it's believed that she died due to contamination from well water. But Ed died later that same year because of food poisoning. And tragically, Robert also died that same year from typhoid fever. This meant that Lida was the sole survivor of the family, leaving her to collect all the life insurance policies as she was now a widow. This widow now found a new husband two years later, and she married William G. Machaffel, and they moved to Montana. And this newly wedded bliss, however, didn't last because William soon died from influenza and diphtheria. I hope you are starting to see the pattern that Earl Dooley did. In 1919, she found husband number three, Harlan C. Lewis, who was a car salesman from Billings, Montana. 
but within four months of their marriage, he too died, this time from a complication of gastroenteritis, which is like an infection from diarrhea, and it caused an inflation, inflammation of his gastro tract. She seemed to just have the worst luck ever, losing three husbands, one daughter, and one brother-in-law, all within five years. But that didn't stop her looking for her love, and so she sought out a fourth husband. She found him in 1920 when she found Edward F. Meyer. He was a ranch foreman in Pocatello, Idaho. It only took him three weeks after their wedding to die from typhoid. This is when Earl jumped in. So let's remember he's related to her first husband, and he realized that following Lida was a trail of deaths that he could not put up to coincidence. So he went to the couple's home where he had recently visited, and in the spot where he had seen Edward vomit on the floor, he scraped up the dirt and took it back to his lab. He was right. Back at the lab, this dirt from this sick spot tested positive for arsenic. Earl then wanted confirmation, took the sample to a physician, Dr. Hal G. Byler, and a second chemist, Edwin F. Roddenbach, independently from each other, and without any prompting from Earl, they all confirmed that the sample contained arsenic. Earl at this point went to the authorities with this information from all three scientists, and all the decedents that surrounded Lida were exhumed for testing. All six victims tested positive for arsenic. They went to Lida's home where they found copious amounts of rolled up flypaper. There were also large barrels that had been filled with water, and it is believed that these barrels are what Lida used to soak the flypaper in to release the arsenic. Further investigation illuminated the police as to motive, money. All four of her husbands had good life insurance policies, and she was the sole beneficiary. Lida, however, had not hung around in Ohio after Edward's death, and she was tracked to Honolulu, Hawaii, where she had already found husband number five, a Navy petty officer, Paul Southard. She was in the process of convincing Paul to get a life insurance policy, but Paul straight out told her no. And when she was officially arrested, he filed for divorce, and she was extradited back to Idaho to stand trial in 1921. Basically, Paul and his denial for his life insurance policy is probably what saved his life. Now, getting back to Lida, there's very little known about her background. She was born in 1862 in Keatsville, Missouri, as Lida Ann May Trueblood. She was the third of 11 children. She was small with blue eyes, red hair, and she was recalled as being very charming. When she was in her teens, her family moved to Twin Falls, Idaho, and that's where they began to farm. And it was at this point that she had found, met, and married her first husband, Edward. Lida was put to trial for the murder of husband number four, and number four only, which was Edward Meyer, and she was found guilty of second-degree murder and needed to serve 10 years to life, which would be served at the Idaho State Penitentiary in Boise, Idaho. But this is not where her story ends, because while imprisoned, Lida found another suitor, a prison guard named Jack Watkins, who helped her to escape. So in 1931, after 10 years of imprisonment, she cut the bars to her cell window with the help of a saw that Jack had smuggled to her. Jack also put a ladder made from plumbing pipes against the wall to the prison, which she used to escape. And once over the prison wall, a different man, David Minton, was waiting. He himself had recently been released from prison three weeks prior. He was another suitor of hers that she had been cultivating through love letters prior to his release and her escape. Jack himself, from what I could find, died from natural causes before Lida was able to escape. Police were on the trail of David and Lida, and they found him in Colorado after Lida had ditched him. 
David was bitter knowing that he had been used and told police exactly where they could find Lida. She had become a housekeeper for Harry Whitlock in Denver, Colorado. And under disguise, she worked her wiles, and these two were married in 1932, making him husband number six. Harry, however, wasn't completely enthralled when he discovered his wife's true identity, so he helped the police in capturing her. He arranged for Lida to go to town on an errand, and it was there that she was found and arrested, and she had been living under the alias Fern Zeller's Reigns. She didn't stop at just changing her name. She had also dyed her hair and replaced her two front teeth with gold teeth. She was rearrested. Harry was rightly granted an annulment, and in an event, he recounted that she had already broached the topic of a life insurance policy with him. So now she's back in the prison system. She, she's working her wiles again. She was granted temporary unguarded freedom for five hours to visit her sick mother. She was allowed to go to local resorts. She was allowed to go see shows in the theater. And when somebody caught on to how much she was allowed to do, like how much freedom she had, Warden Judge George Rudd admitted to the favorable treatment and he promptly resigned. Now, in 1941, so this is 20 years of imprisonment at this point, give or take, at the age of 48, Lida was granted probation and eventually a full pardon. She moved to Oregon to live with her sister for a few years, and then she returned to Idaho to find and meet and marry husband number seven, Hal Shaw. Now, the curious thing is Hal disappeared without a trace within two years of their marriage, but nobody could make a connection between his disappearance and Lida. Like, they don't know if he died, if he ran off, nothing. So Hal is just off in the wind, and we have no clue why or how. Lida herself died of a heart attack while living in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1958 at the age of 65, but her body was returned to Twin Falls, Idaho for burial at Sunset Memorial Park. Moving right along to murder number two, as we have covered before, it is not only women who use poisons to kill. Poison is currently the sixth most preferred method along women killers. It is used just under 0.5% of overall murders. Women are seven times more likely than men to choose poison for murder, but men are nine times more likely to kill than women. So that means technically men kill with poison more often than women. I hope your mind is blown. I think you know where we're going with this one. In 1909, Frederick Seddon and his wife bought a 14-room house at 63 Tollington Park, Finsbury Park, London. They decided to rent out their second floor to make some money on the side, so they placed an advertisement. Eliza Mary Barrow answered the ad as she was a quote-unquote spinster in her late 40s, and she took up residence with her ward, Ernest George Grant, who was an orphan of her friends that she had vowed to take care of. Frederick proposed an offer that she could not refuse. She was to sign over to him controlling interest in all of her money and stocks, including the East Indian Trading Company, and in return, he would not charge her for anything for the rest of her life and even give her a stipend to live on. So needless to say, Eliza and her ward, Ernest, moved in July 26, 1910. The family got along great, and the family included Frederick, his wife Maggie, and their five kids, along with Frederick's father. So they all lived on the ground floor, and Eliza and Ernest took up residence on the second floor. They got along so good that they all went on vacation together in August of 1911. So before we go any further, you should know that Frederick was born 1872, and he married Maggie at the age of 21. 
He was successful. He had a very successful job as a superintendent of collectors for the National Insurance Company. So he was pretty well off by this point, hence the 14-room house in London. But this was never enough for him, and he always wanted to find more ways to make money. Now, with that knowledge, plus the fact that now you know what this episode's about, it should come as no shock that when Frederick sent one of his daughters out after this vacation to buy some flypaper, it was not to kill flies. Two days later, Eliza became ill with diarrhea and vomiting, and a doctor was called and told the couple that they needed to hang sheets soaked with carbolic acid in her room because of the stench. He also prescribed to her bismuth, which is like a Pepto-Bismol, and morphine for the pain. Eliza made it 10 days before she died September 14th. Now, since the doctor had already seen Eliza during her downward spiral, he issued a death certificate without even coming and looking at her after her death. Needless to say, that means no autopsy was performed. Frederick then went on to talk to the undertaker, and he planned the cheapest burial he could for her, and where he buried her in a common plot rather than her own family plot in Islington. He was in the clear until Eliza's cousin, Frank Vanderos, went to visit her, and he was told of her death. He then found out that Frederick was the only beneficiary to all of her funds and stocks. Not even her ward was, like, in her will at all. So when Frank started asking around, no one had any answers for him as to what happened, why this happened, why was Frederick the recipient of all of this. So instead of asking around anymore, he went to the police. The police also had no answers for what took place, and they agreed to exhume her body on November 15, 1911. It is now that Sir William Wilcox performed an autopsy on her, since one was never done before, and he found two grains of arsenic in her body. Again, we've been over this. Grains, it sounds like a little, but it really is a lot. So two grains of arsenic in her body, which would have been enough to kill her. Now performing the back calculations, that meant that she had five grains present at the time of her death. Definitely enough to kill her. So now there was grounds for an official inquest. Frederick was arrested in December, and his wife was arrested six weeks later. They were both put on trial where Maggie was acquitted and Frederick was found guilty. Even though he proclaimed his innocence, he was sentenced to death and he was eventually hanged at Pentonville Prison on April 18, 1912 to a small group of people. Now, why was there a small group of people? This is 1912 when public hangings were still a thing. If you remember your history books at all, the Titanic had sunk only three days previous and the last thing anyone wanted to see was more death. There's that story. I don't know what happened to her ward. Nothing was ever written about it. Um, And I'm assuming that Maggie wound up raising their five children on her own. Moving on to Hungary. Technically, this is going to be 60 miles southeast of Budapest from 1914 through 1929. The women of the village Nagriev, Hungary, never thought of that this, but they were to become infamous thought no one would ever discover their town's secrets because they were such a small town, but everybody did. So this story happens during the time of World War I, and these women had been placed into arranged marriages, and it was not usually a happy outcome for these wives. Their husbands would be oppressive, drunk, abusive, and divorce was absolutely forbidden. So these women were imprisoned in their own misery. 
So when World War I started, these women were not exactly unhappy because that meant that their men were going to be heading off to war, and that would grant these women freedom. And they had so much freedom that when POWs, uh, prisoners of war, were sent to a camp near their towns, these men, the POWs, were allowed to roam around, and some of these women were becoming pregnant, and it was obviously not by their absent husbands. Luckily for them, there was a new midwife in town. In 1911, Julia Fezekas, I believe that's how you say her name, I apologize if it's not, moved into the small town of Negrev. She claimed she was a midwife married to a man named Julius, so Julia and Julius, but her husband was never seen. He never joined her. This is all the history that we know of this woman. She was a ghost prior to her arrival, and as a midwife, she was responsible for all manners of medical care in the town, along with performing illegal abortions. Because of these abortions, she was arrested 10 times between 1911 and 1921. She was acquitted every time, as the judges at this time supported the reasons of the abortions, as well as the fact that she was the sole medical help that this town had. She was the only thing that could be equated to a doctor, so if they imprisoned her, the town would have no doctor. During this time, it appears that Julia was not only performing abortions, but she was also helping the women of the village with another of their problems, their husbands. These men were slowly returning from the war, thinking they would pick right back up where they left off, and uh, some of these women were not having it anymore because they were behaving even worse as they were suffering from PTSD. And these women had their taste of freedom and their taste of a calm life, and they were not exactly excited that these men survived the war to come home and continue treating them like punching bags and verbal warfare. So they decided to do something about it. And this is where Julia showed off another one of her talents. She, too, would boil flypaper, scrape off what floated to the surface, which was a poisonous mixture that included arsenic, as we know by now. There was no set price for this uh, tonic, we'll say. Uh, it would just be whatever people could afford. That's what they paid. And Julia was okay with it. Uh, she did not spill the secret of her source for the arsenic, but she did convince the women that it was undetectable in the human body because that was what was believed at the time. The first death was Mr. Takas, who was an abusive alcoholic man, and Mrs. Takas was taken seriously when she was musing that she wished her husband was dead. With Julia's help, he was fed some arsenic and died with his death being ruled as a heart attack. His wife was now free of her abusive alcoholic husband, and no one thought anything untoward had happened. Word quickly spread throughout the women in this town that Julia was the cure to the problematic men in their lives, and these women were starting to begin known as the Angel Makers. Now, who could officially become an Angel Maker? The group eventually consisted of 50 women who determined the rules of the Angel Makers. So start thinking, this is Fight Club, and the rules about Fight Club is no one talks about Fight Club. So that's kind of along the lines of what we're doing. So they decided that you must be married and you could not help the single women of the village to kill their lovers because this was all about husbands and people who were trapped, not about people who chose to be with abusive people. They also were not allowed to help men kill women. And initially, no women or children were allowed to be killed either. And like Fight Club, you can't talk about the Angel Club. So the more men that died... The more men were not agreeing to marriage, thinking that it was a death sentence. So they pretty much started noticing that these men that were placed in these arranged marriages were just dropping like flies, pun intended. 
So as the deaths became more prevalent in the area, more superstitions prevailed. Was it witchcraft, curses, disease? And the small town eventually began known as the murder district because over the course of 18 years, anywhere from 45 to 300 people had died. Obviously, record keeping at this point was a little bit hard, and it was during World War I. So I know it's a broad range, but that's pretty much what we get to deal with. We've now hit the point where Julia needed or wanted an accomplice, so she recruited Susie Ola, who had killed not one, but two husbands. Susie's son-in-law was the county clerk or the village coroner. It's like kind of wishy-washy language, plus half of what I had to translate was Hungarian. And his position in the small town had him with the ability to write death certificates that claimed these men were dying of heart attacks or drownings because some of the bodies were thrown in the river and that's where they were found, also found dying of diseases or consumption. And it worked because the only medical practitioner they had in town was Julia. So you've got this guy who's corrupt who's able to write death certificates based on what the only medical professional in town is telling him that these people died of. Soon, as these things are, it snowballed. And it was not just the husbands dying, it was starting to look like elderly and ill family members, children, anyone that was affecting inheritance. Julia famously started stated that, why put up with them? And so pretty much anybody who had a problematic person in their life went to Julia to get their quote-unquote help. So now it seemed that the angel makers, they dropped their initial agreements on who was allowed to be targeted. But in 1929, they were discovered. Now how they were discovered, there's literally no consensus. So I'm going to give you three published, recounted, many times, theories. One. One member, Mrs. Sabo, was caught by members of her family that survived the poisoning. She named both Julia and Susie, and this led to their arrest. But Mrs. Sabo recanted her accusations, stating that the police bullied her into naming anyone. They released all parties involved, but left both Julia and Susie under surveillance. The officer following Julia noticed that she started visiting the houses of widows in her town. He would then arrest the women in the house and question them. And he would get an even more gray story coming off this theory. It was claimed that the women discovered the arsenic could be discovered on the dead bodies. So the women went to the cemetery with the intention to exchange the headstones of their dead dead ones with the headstones of people who died from natural causes. Like, that's kind of brilliant if you think about it. Um, unfortunately, there is a rec record of where people are buried. Um, let's not forget also, the police were, well, now really on to this group of women, and they were following them, and they arrested them in the cemetery before these exchanges could happen. Theory number two, a neighboring town's medical student performed an autopsy on a decedent that had been washed up in the river. So remember, some would be deposited in the water. And the doctor discovered arsenic poisoning and alerted authorities, and they discovered that this decedent came from Negrev. So they went there, and they further investigated. Theory number three was an anonymous letter to the local newspaper claiming that the men of the village were being killed. Once this was published, the police had absolutely no choice but to investigate the allegations. No matter which theory, eventually, these women were caught. Now, what happened next is unanimous. The bodies of these decedents were exhumed and tested for arsenic, and curious enough, the bottles and the cakes that contained the arsenic were in the coffins with the decedents. 
So it's like they believed that the bodies would never be exhumed, so it was the perfect way of disposing of the evidence, just bury it with the body. And I guess it did work for quite a while. 34 women and one man were arrested, 26 were brought to trial, 8 received the death penalty, and 12 were given prison sentences of varying degrees. You may be wondering about Julia. Well, rather than go to prison with her group, she wound up killing herself with, you may have guessed it, her flypaper arsenic. Some of the other widows that were brought in and everything were also committed suicide. Some hanged themselves with bedsheets in their cells while the other widows watched. They did not attempt to help them as they realized that this is what they wanted. Further investigation shows that the neighboring village of, I am so sorry I'm going to butcher this, uh, Tizakert, exhumed some of their bodies, and these bodies also showed arsenic. So did the angel maker spread to nearby villagers, or was there another poisoner of husbands about? I'll leave that up to you to decide. Now I'm moving into the last but not least, and definitely not the last of the flypaper homicides. We're now in May of 1940 when 53-year-old widowed Anthony, quote, Tony Hepperman, who had married his second wife, Emma, just six weeks previous, fell ill and had to go to the hospital. It was not just him, but also his 12-year-old daughter, Ethel, from this previous marriage. Uh, His previous wife had died about eight years prior to this. But so both of them are sick. Both of them were taken to St. Joseph's Hospital in St. Charles, Missouri. His story would shock the doctors that were present because he said that he believed he and his daughter had been poisoned by his new wife. He died not long after this statement, and when he did, the doctors felt it necessary to perform an autopsy. And what they found was a quote-unquote staggering amount of arsenic in his system. Police started looking into his new bride and her history, and they were shocked at this woman's history and how she had flown under the radar for so long. So it's no secret, I'm going to lay out the history of the deaths that have trailed this woman. I feel like I'm doing round two on the previous one. You'll see what I mean in a minute. So this woman was born Emma Serrana in Steelville in 1894. She married her first husband, Charles Augustus Schwack, when she was 14. That's allegedly based on what she had said. More than likely, she was 19, but still, he was 33. So there's definitely an age discrepancy. He had previous children before he married her, but that's beside the point. We'll get into children later. He died after about 15 or 17, because of math, uh, years of this marriage in July of 1925. The doctors determined that he died from dysentery based on the death certificate from the Missouri State Board of Health. It's real hard to get these death certificates, so when I get them, I'm really excited, uh, because this one was falsely reported a couple of times as different methods of death, but confirmed this one's dysentery on the initial death certificate. He was her first, but definitely not her last, because over the course of a few years, she married six other men. Most of them met the same fate. So August the next year, her daughter from this marriage, Lola May, who was 14, she died as well. I couldn't find her death certificate, so I'm not quite sure if that one's contended or not. Moving on to 1932, she married Frank Lee, her second husband, and they divorced. Or did they? There is absolutely no record of this man or marriage or any divorce. The only record that we have of this is what she said she allegedly did. Her mother-in-law from her first husband died in 1933. Again, I could not find a death certificate, but the reason I mention these side deaths is because it's unknown if they're connected to her or not. Husband number three was Frank Joseph Bremser, who died months after their marriage, and this was allegedly from a fall off a ladder that caused a severe hemorrhage. 
This is all according to Emma. His body was cremated. When her fourth husband, Burt Roberts, and his mother died, questions were raised, and it was known that they had eaten Emma's famous potato soup prior to their death. Burt's doctor was convinced that he had been poisoned, but a coroner's jury disagreed, and it was declared he died from acute gastritis, allegedly from bad sardines that caused food poisoning. Uh, haven't we heard that before? Just today in this episode, less than 30 minutes ago? Husband number five was William A. Vaughn, who was 61, not Avon, A-V-A-U-G-H-N. This couple separated after only six months, and then they divorced. Uh, Oddly enough, that same year, his house burned down. But at least that's all he suffered was some arson and not what the rest of these men suffered. So husband number six was Loy Schneider. He was a farmer in St. Charles County. He signed over his life insurance policy to his new and loving wife. Unfortunately, he too would die from quote-unquote tainted food. He and his daughter Antoinette were also both poisoned by arsenic. This daughter, however, did survive. After arsenic was found in Tony, remember this is husband number seven that started this entire investigation, Loy's death was reinvestigated, and Loy's brother testified that Emma told him, hit the brother, three times that she wanted to kill him and make him soup. So we've got that going for us. Back to Tony. So how they actually met. Emma had put an ad in the paper under, quote, situations wanted. It was three years after Loy died, and she was soliciting herself as like a housekeeper for a motherless home. She was neat and pleasant. Tony was very excited, and he responded. Emma went to the farm, but when she got there, she was very honest with him and basically stated, I like your farm, but I really just want to get married. I don't want to be your housekeeper. However, I will work for you for two weeks, and if you like me, we get married. If you don't like me, I go back to St. Louis, but either way, you won't have to pay me. Turns out he liked her, because they met in March, married in April, but he died in May. So that's probably why she didn't think he needed to pay her, because she was going to get the money in the long run. And also keep in mind, Emma's not child-free at this point, because she did have children of her own from her previous marriages, as well as their children, because they died while she was married to them. So I was going to lay out all the children that had been in Emma's life, but there are just too many and it gets very confusing. So instead, I'm only mentioning the two that are involved with her path of destruction. So Emma was arrested for Tony's murder and she was moved to Franklin County, which is where she was to be tried in front of a jury of farmers. And this change of venue was due to the fact that what she had done was so publicized by this point that it tainted any jury pool of where she lived. And so the trial had Tony's son recount a visit home. Uh, His son was 23 at the time. And he said that his father and sister were sick and Emma would make meals for everybody, but she wouldn't eat those meals because she said she wasn't hungry. And he stayed at the house for three days. And in that entire three days, he didn't see Emma eat anything that she had made for everybody else. He told Emma she needed to call a doctor for his father and sister, but she said she wasn't having it because it was too expensive. 
So the reason it's believed Ethel was able to survive is she did actually make it to a doctor's visit. And when she was found very ill, and they eventually released her, but instead of going home, she went and lived with her sister Isabel for a week. When she went back home after this week, she found her father even more sick. And now that she was back home, she was becoming sick again, and that's when they were both admitted to the hospital. So Tony essentially had another week of poisoning than his daughter. So now we get to Dr. Benedict Neuspicer, Neuspicer, who performed the autopsy and testified that Tony did die from arsenic poisoning taken by the mouth and not injected. Now, what is curious is it was brought up that Tony could have been poisoned by something called London Purple and not flypaper arsenic. And that's because Emma had recently purchased both and not in small quantities. She purchased one package of Siebert's flypaper in about mid-April and by early May, she went and purchased three more packets claiming she needed it for water bugs and not for flies. It didn't really need to be proven. Um, London purple is also an insecticide and it did contain some arsenic, but Tony had a substantial amount in his system and the amount that you can get from London purple and get that into the human body, it didn't seem like it was as much as the flypaper. But either way, they didn't have to prove one way or the other. They just had to prove that arsenic was in his system and that Emma was the one who got the arsenic to bring into the home. And so when she was put on trial, she was found guilty and sentenced to serve life in prison in the Missouri Penitentiary after a nine-hour deliberation. And she served 27 years of her sentence, and it was commuted in 1968, and she was, like, released but it's believed that she was sent on like a compassionate release because her death is recorded as also happening in 1968. I didn't see what she died of. Uh, In fact, I had to dig real deep to find that she died in 1968, and she is buried in an unmarked grave in Hillcrest Cemetery in Callaway County, Missouri. Now, you may ask yourself why she would kill so many people. It's the most common reason, money. It's their life insurance policies. So if you want the famous recipe for this potato soup, you can find it in Missouri's Murderous Matrons, written by Victoria Costner and Lorelai Shannon, and the soup itself contains butter, cheese, cream, potatoes, and her secret ingredient. I don't recommend that you use that secret ingredient, however, unless you intend to include love. Hopefully that was uh, entertaining for you guys. I really hope that we get back to normal schedule next week. Hopefully Miss Mayday isn't caught up in all of the plane debacles that are happening worldwide right now. And uh, we'll get a normal episode for you guys next week. Bye. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. 